Welcome to Real Time with Women's Leaders in Pharma. My name is Angelina Brathwaite, and I have the pleasure of serving on the board for Women's Leaders in Pharma. I will be your host for this episode, and it's my absolute pleasure to introduce you to our guest for today, Dr. Alice Cheng. Dr. Cheng is an endocrinologist at Trillium Health Partners and Unity Health Toronto and an associate professor at the University of Toronto. She has been involved with the development of Diabetes Canada Clinical Practice Guidelines since 2003 and served as chair for the 2013 version. Currently, she is an associate editor for the Canadian Journal of Diabetes and immediate past chair of the professional section of Diabetes Canada. In recognition of her contribution, she has received the National Charles H. Best Award and the Gerald S. Wong Service Award from Diabetes Canada. She is also the creator of MedEdge, an initiative to increase diversity and inclusion in continuing medical education. Welcome, Dr. Cheng. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure is all ours. Please describe for the audience how and why the MedEdge Pledge was created. So I have been involved in in medicine for a long time, uh, longer than I I care to say. And uh, that has obviously involved a lot of continuing medical education. And I've had the the honor and the privilege to be able to do a lot of teaching in various parts of the country as well as around the world. And one of the things that I had noticed over time was that very often I was the only woman uh, and or the only person of color on the stage. Uh, whether that was on a local level, regional level, national level, or international level. And initially, I had thought that this was going to change over time. But unfortunately, it, it did not change over time. And it, I continue to this day to often be the only woman or person of color on a given faculty. And the MedEd pledge was very much born out of that recognition that we need to do better. I had conversations with some other female colleagues and realized that this was a phenomenon everywhere. And the question was, how can we take action? How can we try to solve this issue? And who's responsible? And I realized that the responsibility is actually all of ours. It's very easy to try the shaming and blaming game and and blame the organizers for not having recognized something. But really, the responsibility is in everyone's hand. The power is in everyone's hands. Of course, it's in the hands of the organizer, but it's also in the hands of the speakers who are invited. It's also in the hands of the funders, the people who accredit the program, but also very much the people who attend the program. Because as an attendee, you arguably have the greatest power because you need to show up for an event to be successful. And if you notice that there is a lack of diversity or inclusion, it's an opportunity to say something. And not in a shaming and blaming way, but in a what can we do together to try to make more people recognize this and then actively cause change to occur. And therefore, the MedEd Pledge was created as an online platform for people to to read it, think about it, absorb it, make a personal commitment to play their own respective role in trying to fix the problem, and then to sign up for the MedEd Pledge, not for everyone to see who has signed up, but actually for yourself to make that active commitment to affect change in whatever environment you're in. So that 
was the idea behind the MedEd pledge and the whole concept of giving power and responsibility to all of us who are involved in medical education in, in any way. We know that our listeners are really going to appreciate this episode. They're probably thinking about their own physicians and their patients. From a physician perspective, and even from a patient perspective, what is needed so that they in turn can adapt their medical practice to the diverse population they are serving? Because we're looking at uh, different elements such as culture, nationality, et cetera. I think all of us went into medicine with that lofty goal of wanting to help people, right? Of wanting to help people, wanting to help people live better lives. And we need to recognize that to do that, we need to take into account the entire person, not just their organs, as we often do in medicine, not just the specific disease state per se, but the entire person. And the entire person obviously includes and encompasses everything about them in terms of their identity, in terms of uh, their their gender, their their race, their ethnicity, their the social environment, all the social determinants of health. And, and I think there is now a stronger conversation occurring that we do need to think beyond the biology and actually look at the human. So for us individually as healthcare providers, I think recognizing our own biases is going to be critical. All of us have biases. There is no one out there who does not have them. Mm-hmm. But we need to self-reflect and figure out what they are, recognize them, Uh, If you need to write them down so that you can remind yourself of the biases you have and then constantly just sort of be checking in with yourself. Is there something I'm saying or doing that may actually be reflecting those biases and and what can I do to change that? So really self-reflection is key and insight is key and trying to create an inclusive environment, a physical environment of where it is that you work, but also the language you use because the words we use are so powerful. Uh, and I think we need to, again, reflect on what are the words that we're using and what messages are we sending out there? And there certainly are resources out there and, and books out there uh, that talk about practical things one could do in the office to be a bit more inclusive. But I think it's, it's got to start by looking in the mirror and, and asking ourselves, what are some of the internal biases that we have? Yeah, self-reflection is not always easy, as we know, but it's something that is imperative that we do. Dr. Chang, we know that you are all about empowering others to elevate their voice when they notice less diversity in clinical med programs. What are some of the things we can do as individuals or institutions to have an impact, to make changes, and to hold people accountable? I think to start off, one needs to evaluate whether or not there is an issue, wherever it is that you're working. So I'm talking about an audit. I'm not talking about a long, painful audit. I'm talking about something as simple as perhaps just looking at the last two years of programming that your particular institution has been involved in, in whichever therapeutic area. And just taking a look at the list of the faculty that may have been organizing it and then the faculty that have been speaking. Take a look at the advisory boards, the consultancy meetings in the last couple of years, and just take a look at the names and the the, the, I guess, initial easy split may be looking at it from a gender perspective. And then it's very easy to then look into the respective provinces and the colleges uh, for the medical profession, because usually there's a directory where you can put in the specialty of interest and then actually uh, put in the gender and then see what is the distribution. So, for example, in endocrinology in Ontario, 
it's mm-hmm. closer to a 60-40 split where let's say 60% female, 40% male. But then if you take a look at the last two years of programming in your institution and in all of those things, it's actually a 20-80 split of um, 20% female, 80% male. There is a there is a discord, right? It's, it's not, they don't match. And that right there provides data to say, hey, there's something we need to look at. From there, you can then try to find the allies within your institution to be able to show this data and then be able to say, okay, what can we do to be deliberate to try to solve this issue? And it's going to be important to create a comfortable, inclusive environment when doing that second part, because there are lots of people who agree with this idea in principle, but then when it comes to the practicalities, then start to shy away. And there are a lot of people who have questions, but are afraid to voice those questions because they don't want to sound like they disagree or sound like they're not being politically correct. And we need to create that environment where people can ask those questions and not be uh, not be attacked for asking those questions. And we can anticipate those questions. And in fact, sometimes even ask them and answer them in that same conversation, which saves them having to ask it. So when you look at the MedEd Pledge website, one of the documents I created was actually a frequently asked questions document for that specific reason, knowing full well that there are very appropriate questions that people want to ask, but may be afraid to ask. So let's go ahead and answer them for them so that we can bring more allies into the picture. And then it's a matter of operationalizing the details, which is going to need to be deliberate in how programs are developed, uh, not just checkboxes, but actual items that people need to think about. And then we need to grow the base of speakers who would be able to be outside the box because we reflexively go to our usual players because we know them, they've been around forever, we, we know they'll do a good job, but there's lots of other players that we haven't had the chance to, to develop, we haven't had the chance to experience and see and mentor. And I think this would be an avenue to do so. So having maybe programs where uh, X percentage could be sort of the usual suspects, but you're always going to bring in one or two new people when you're developing a program, for example. How do you find these new people? Well, sometimes it's the old people who can help you find the new people <laughs> because it's the, the usual suspects often are mentors to the next generation or are aware of the up and rising stars. And then they may actually be quite comfortable saying, uh, you know, hey, there's this person who's in my faculty who uh, might be interested. So then you're actually bringing in the usual suspect as an ally to help create that next generation and doing so in a way where they then feel empowered as opposed to being pushed out. So there, there are different strategies that, that could be used. Those uh, stats, the 20, 80%, that's quite alarming. And I have two questions for you. One is what other metrics will they be measuring um, healthcare? Because we talked about gender. Are there any other metrics that they look at such as race or uh, religion. And secondly, with regards to the usual suspects, do they extend this to community physicians or is it just those that are part of the, the public hospitals? The example that I gave was using gender as, um, as a way to determine if there's adequate diversity. The, however, I, I think I chose that because that one 
the data are collected. We're able to see the numbers when we look at the registry for physicians that are endocrinologists in Ontario, for example. But obviously, there are other very important parameters such as ethnicity that should be considered. However, those data are not necessarily collected. So if you were going to look at your institution's last two years of events, you may not be able to tell the ethnicity of a given individual. You could make an educated guess based on the last name, but we know that that has limitations. So part of the issue is that we, we don't really uh, collect those data adequately to be able to answer some of those questions. I think that's changing because even when I filled out the last college registration that we have to do every year, there's now starting to ask more of those questions that try to identify different groups that people may in fact come from. So, so absolutely there are other measures that should be taken, but it's the availability of those data that need to grow a bit more over time. And, and I think that's something that could also be, be worked on. Now to address the second part of your question, this is absolutely not isolated to the academic institutions. When I'm talking about growing the pool of presenters and speakers and, and consultants, advisors, it should absolutely include those that are not in the quote unquote ivory tower of academia. In fact, if the whole idea is to educate, then we need to hear voices from everywhere that truly represent our patient population, which guess what, lives everywhere. So we need to have professionals that are coming from all different aspects of care that we provide in order to be able to learn from each other and to bring the appropriate um, perspective. And so, yes, it should definitely go beyond the, the traditional academic ivory tower, but to our community healthcare providers as well. And, and that will only happen again when there's representation, uh, because we, we need to sort of see those people who are not just the academic ivory tower physicians and healthcare providers, but also people who are on the ground seeing lots and lots of patients. Yeah, I love that idea because that segment of the population you know, is ignored sometimes. So I hope um, that does come to fruition. What are the top three takeaways for the pledge that you can share with the audience, especially for the ones who are in pharma, like the medical science liaisons, or in a, another medical affairs role who wish to make an impact, but they really don't know where to start? So hard to narrow it down to three things, eh? So I yeah. would say that Step one is to uh, take notice, is to take notice, be deliberate in taking notice and uh, having that auditing. I mean, a very practical level, that audit may be your first in to sort of show your, your group that, hey, there is in fact an issue. The second thing is to recognize that you do have a voice and the power to affect change. And after you take notice, you take action. And what can that action be? The action is not shaming and blaming. The action is pointing it out and providing a direction forward of what are the steps we can take as a group to avoid this happening again or to build better programs moving forward. And the third thing I would say is to celebrate the successes because there are successes. There are some programs that are, in fact, 
deliberately constructed to have greater diversity and inclusion, and I feel like we should acknowledge them. So as opposed to shaming the ones that don't, let's celebrate the ones that do, and then hopefully more people will want to be like that. And it's also a good demonstration that you can build very high quality programs that are diverse. So in the programs that I'm involved in, sometimes I'll actually have a slide that actually says this program was developed with the principles of the MedEd pledge uh, for greater diversity and inclusion. And, and often if you just have the photos of the faculty members or organizing committee, that all already brings that point across. But then I want to deliberately point it out so that people realize, hey, it can be done and let's celebrate it. So those would be some suggestions I would have. I, I could go on for another hour. But I, let's keep it short. And I think those would be the three that I would say. Dr. Chang, I want to thank you for all that you do. Being a champion of diversity and inclusion is not easy. There's a lot you have to navigate through, like fear, resistance, discomfort. We appreciate all that you're doing for the patients, the medical education, and society as a whole. And we're truly grateful for you. Thank you so very much for having me. Thank you very much. It's our pleasure. And please take the opportunity and time to visit the MedEdge Pledge at www.themedgepledge.com. Thank you to our WLP listeners and be sure to get empowered by our next episode, which will be released in late August. Mm -hmm.